0: Modern. Modern. modern 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 we're prepping for a voyage modern the force modern. of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't
1: you make that a double modern bar cart
0: what's shaken, cocktail fans welcome to episode 196 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host modern bar cart ceo eric koslick Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I hang out with Jamie Bloschke, creator of the Lagoon of Mystery and host of A Moment of Tiki on YouTube. He's a home tiki bar architect and a renaissance man when it comes to tropical botany, exotica, calypso, and bossa nova music, current tiki trends, and more. This is somewhere between a crossover episode and a very nerdy deep dive because Jamie is the creator of a home bar build-out blog and a YouTube channel devoted to tiki drinks and culture. As you can imagine, we cover a lot of ground in our conversation, which means that now might be an ideal time to pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Chief Lapu Lapu. To make it, you'll need 3 quarters of an ounce of dark Jamaican rum, 3 quarters of an ounce of light rum, 1 ounce of passion fruit syrup, 1 ounce of lemon or lime juice, lemon is traditional but go for lime if you want a little bit more of that malic acid pop, and 1 and a half ounces of orange juice. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice. Give them a good healthy shake for about 15 seconds and then strain into a glass filled with crushed ice. Garnish with an orange wedge and a few pineapple fronds and enjoy. There's not a whole lot of drinkware consensus out there for this cocktail. I've seen it served in a lowball bucket glass, a hurricane glass, and even in a hollowed out pineapple. So my recommendation would be to use any vessel that can accommodate the liquid in the garnish which means that the Chief Lapu Lapu cocktail is probably a great excuse to break out your favorite tiki mug if you've got one. This drink has a great story behind it, as Jamie and I will discuss later in the episode. It's a wonderful example of a slightly off-the-beaten-path cocktail that holds its own next to the giants of the tiki world like the Mai Tai and the Zombie, but that also encourages us to explore the history and geography responsible for tiki and tropical drinks. That's a fancy way of saying that the real-life Chief Lapu-Lapu is credited with defeating in battle a very prominent European explorer, so be sure to join us in the lightning round if you'd like to find out exactly what happened. So, now that your tiki mug is full and your seas are free, hopefully, from enemy sales, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this tropical deep dive with home bar architect and tiki expert Jamie Bloschke, creator of The Lagoon of Mystery and host of A Moment of Tiki, some of the topics we discuss include how a brush with homelessness and an offhand comment made while floating in a pool spawned a passion for tiki and led Jamie to build and cultivate his beautiful home tiki bar, The Lagoon of Mystery. A virtual walkthrough of some of the building materials, design choices, and escapist landscaping that morphed Jamie's Texas poolside patio into a transportive oasis that plays dive-in movies during the summer. Some thoughts on how to relate to tiki culture as a white guy, which Jamie and I both are. We offer perspectives and concrete resources that'll help you learn about colonialism appropriation and how to celebrate tiki tastefully in the 21st century a fun romp through the many genres of island-appropriate music that you can use to flesh out your tiki playlist, including exotica, calypso, bossa nova, and modern indigenous compositions that will whisk you away to a tropical landscape. Along the way, we discuss what kind of tiki bar could boast a mechanical bull, how to avoid weevils in your bamboo, why not to drink green beer with J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and much, much more. This, folks, is one of those shows where you're going to want to check out the show notes. If you listen through and want to hit up one or more of the dozens of resources that Jamie drops on anything from woodworking to tiki mugs to growing palm trees in Kentucky, we'll have them for you. If you do catch one that we miss, kindly shoot us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com or feel free to message Jamie directly on Instagram and we'll be sure to point you in the right direction. The last thing I'll say before we dive in here is that I'm a huge fan of how Jamie leads by example. In every aspect of his passion for Tiki, he does the work. He knows the plants in his garden. He can rattle off musicians and albums from many decades of exotic music. He knows what Don Beach was doing in 1937 as opposed to 1936 or 1938. And while Tiki, to some... Might represent a getaway or a reprieve from the modern world, you get the definite sense that for Jamie, the escapism of Tiki is an escape to a place like the Lagoon of Mystery rather than an escape from real life. With that, I hope you enjoy this extremely fun and more than occasionally nerdy deep dive with Jamie Bloschke, creator of the Lagoon of Mystery and host of A Moment of Tiki. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Appreciate it. So let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Who are you? What do you do? And uh, why are we here talking today?
1: <laughs> well, um, Eric, I am a recovering journalist who now works in media relations. I write when I can't help myself. And over the years, i published a number of science fiction and fantasy short stories in various markets, a bunch of music and book reviews, a bunch more interviews with authors and artists who are far more talented and successful than I am. I also published a nonfiction history of the infamous Chicken Ranch brothel a few years back, which your listeners may be more familiar with as the best little whorehouse in Texas. I've never worked in the beverage industry, but am a cocktail enthusiast who has a home tiki bar called the Lagoon of Mystery, which is why I presume I'm here talking with you now.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um, I'd love to kick this off by telling our listeners the story of the Lagoon of Mystery. Uh, As I understand it from sort of a big picture point of view, it, it involves a place called New Braunfels, Texas. And a pool of a certain shape. So why don't why don't you give us the, the whole backstory and um, how that led to the Laguna Mystery and your now YouTube channel?
1: Okay. Well, um, I live in New Braunfels, Texas, which is a uh, not well not so small. It's growing pretty quickly, but it's a small town right north of uh, San Antonio. Uh, it was founded in 1845 for your history lesson, the epicenter of German immigration to Texas. Uh, today it's known best for Worstfest, which is a 10-day salute to sausage, and Schlitterbahn, which is the world's largest water park. It is not known for tiki. It has almost no tiki whatsoever, uh, except for my home tiki bar. And actually a couple of artists uh, who are associated with the tiki scene live around there as well. Um, To make a long story short, uh, 2014, uh, my family and I were almost homeless. Uh, We had sold our home and the house we were going to buy the deal fell through when uh, our building inspector came out with his eyes white and said, no, you don't want to live here. Uh, So we kind of scrambled around and the home that we're in now um, had been out of our price range, but they had come down in the interim. Uh, so we were able to actually get it—an incred- an incredible steal. Um, you know, I expect uh, federal agents to kick down our door any day, you know, to arrest us for it. But uh, this house had a swimming pool uh, surrounded by palm trees and a 65-foot covered patio that was made for entertaining. Had it not been for that house, my wife and I had had this discussion, we would never have known Tiki existed outside of the 1950s. Uh, so one day we're floating in the pool and my wife just pipes up spontaneously and says, we need a tiki bar. So I said, okay, I can do this. I have some modest uh, woodworking skills. So I put together a standalone bar uh, to go outside under the uh, covered patio. And that was our tiki bar. Whoa, hey, yay, yay! it's got a little bamboo on it. It's got some thatch. And I thought I was pretty hot stuff. Fast forward to say December of 2016, for some reason I was looking online and just typed in home tiki bars, just as I don't even remember why anymore. But a website called Tiki Central came up, and on it there was a message board that was entirely dedicated to home tiki bars, and that blew my mind. Uh, we have uh, Disney Imagineers, Pixar executives. Uh, you know, all sorts of people, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people across the country that had dedicated spaces in their homes to home tiki bars. And some of these are spectacular. I mean, just mind-bogglingly complex. And I looked at my little thatch and bamboo standalone bar and said, oh, I have to up my game. And so it has been a very deep and twisty rabbit hole ever since that I've been falling down. You know, Alice has nothing on me. I still haven't hit bottom, you know, all these years later. It's really fun because because we have a swimming pool right there. And it's not a huge swimming pool. Um, it's huge for us because we've never had one before, but it's 11,000 gallons. So it's, it's a comfortable size. I got the idea. Actually, my wife suggested it. She comes up with all the best ideas to put a screen a drop cloth. Basically, it's a canvas drop cloth. It's super low-tech. Drop it from the edge of the patio, the covered patio, and set up a projector on the opposite side of the pool. And we have dive-in movies. And so during the summer, uh, we have various movies that we screen, um, old Elvis films, uh, the, you know, Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon beach flicks, uh, all sorts of different things, the various fun summer uh, event films, and we always pair a themed cocktail with it. Uh, last week we had our first one in over two years because of the COVID, uh, gap and we screened Elvis Presley, girls, girls, girls. And the featured co- uh, cocktail was the Velvet Elvis, not Tiki, but it was fun. And everyone had a blast and we had a great turnout and you know, a good time was had by all.
0: Man, that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Uh, I love the dive in movie concept, and, uh, it, one of my favorite movies, I suppose, of that genre, maybe a little bit less tiki, a little bit more oceany would be uh, The Endless Summer. My my father-in-law is big into surfing and he uh, introduced me to The Endless Summer. And I think that's a that's a fantastic movie to uh, to screen on uh, such an occasion as a, as a dive in setting when you've got tiki drinks uh, flowing. And uh, yeah, it just sounds like a whole lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and yeah, that's absolutely a great movie movie you know it's a travel log or the best surf locations uh, around the world especially like South Africa when they have to trek for miles and miles over dunes and this end of the earth just to find these standing waves where they can gently cruise across the bay I mean that that's I I had no idea that such waves existed or anything because I'm not a surfer Texas is not exactly known for a coast that lends itself to uh, surf other than when hurricanes occasionally hit so you know, that, that was a movie to watch.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons uh, that I wanted to talk with you here today, uh, we've had some interactions. You listen to our podcast. I have subscribed to your YouTube channel. Uh, You were kind enough to to shout our podcast out on a recent um, episode that you dropped kind of going through some of the the podcasts that you listen to on a regular basis. So I'm super grateful for that. Uh, But also, uh, you have a wonderful Instagram presence. And I feel like I've learned a lot not just about tiki, but about the, I guess, practical sort of concrete materials of tiki, whether that is the plants that exist in your lagoon of mystery, whether it's the, uh, you know, the the drinkware that you're using or the flowers that you're showcasing. Like when when I look at your Instagram feed, one of the things that is abundantly clear to me is just what you mentioned earlier that you're falling down this rabbit hole that there that you still haven't hit bottom yet and and that it seems like an incredibly gratifying and spreading hobby and i i guess not being somebody who would define myself as like a hardcore tiki person i just wanted to have the conversation because from an outside observer's perspective what you're doing is fascinating, and um, and I, I just I want to introduce our our listeners to that in case anyone out there is sort of nurturing this little tiki hobby. Uh, we're still in a time when it's great to be able to have these at home hobbies because you know we're still kind of gradually recovering from COVID and all this stuff. Uh, We've got some variants flying around that people are a little bit freaked out with and despite the inordinate cost of building materials and other things, I still think this is a great time for people to be interested in that sort of hobby. So before we go any further, can you tell us um, like any other, I guess, improvements or I guess uh, things about the Lagoon of Mystery that you'd like to feature as a tiki bar, like anything you're particularly proud of, I guess? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, You know,
1: tiki at its heart is escapism. It's supposed to be fun. Uh, It's supposed to be immersive. It's a fantasy vacation where you can pretend the real world troubles that you have to deal with every day, you know, your concerns at work or school or family, you can pretend they're an ocean away. That's why all the best commercial tiki bars don't have any windows. You don't want the exterior world intruding. me, I don't really have that because mine is outside. I can't really black out the sky or anything like that, so I have to depend a little bit on the landscaping. Fortunately, we had uh, several sable palm trees, which are you know familiar to people on the East Coast in Florida and throughout the South. Uh, they're fairly cold tolerant and uh, grow large and impressive. I supplemented that with uh, some bamboo fencing, um, have added in uh, hardy, hibiscus. Uh, People may be familiar with Rose of Sharon bushes, also called Althea, which is deciduous. They lose their leaves in the winter, and as soon as spring comes back, they burst back out into leaf and flower. Uh, There are also the native mallows, which are North American types of uh, hibiscus, which die back to the ground. But as soon as the ground warms up again, they spring back up. So they can survive you know, up into areas of like Nebraska or the Ohio River Valley, you know, much, much colder than any tropical hibiscus ever could. And the flowers are big, showy, and impressive. Um, I've long been fascinated by passion flowers. Uh, They grow on vines. They create passion fruit, which, you know, some are edible. uh, Some are even palatable. Uh, But they have these spectacular, intricate, showy flowers that are very, very intricate and tropical looking. Plumeria. Plumeria aren't really hardy uh, any place in uh, the U.S. apart from, you know, Southern California and Florida. But, you know, they're easily grown in pots and kept at a reasonable size. And there are other trees. I have loquats. Uh, loquats are relatively hardy for central Texas. Uh, we had a brutal, brutal cold spell back in February where the uh, temperatures got down to like nine degrees for a week, which is... I mean, it's never been that cold here, and I'm, you know, 50-something years old, uh, so a lot of uh, plant life that had been well-established here, you know, didn't make it, so you got to find out what's hardy and what's not. Um, I lost a couple of loquat trees, but, you know, other places in town had others that survived. They have a big, leafy, tropical look to them. Uh, uh, Fehoa bushes, which are also called pineapple guava. Spectacular flowers, uh, edible fruit. They're really popular in New Zealand um, throughout the tropics. They came through fairly unscathed, big bushy tropical appearance. So it's uh, it's really layering and styling uh, your space, your outdoor space. Um, bananas. I have some uh, fairly hardy banana plants. Uh, they are all killed back to the ground by the freeze, you know, nine degrees is minus 12 Celsius for your international listener, listeners. So, you know, we're not talking about just a little frost, but uh, they've all sprung back and they're growing, they're, they're about 10 feet tall now o- over the course of uh, four months. And that adds a lot to the ambiance. For someone looking to try and do some tropical or tropical-ish gardening in more temperate areas, there is a book I'd like to recommend. It's called Palms Won't Grow Here, and let me see if I can come up with the name real quick.
0: That's a great name.
1: Uh, oh, David Franco. Yes, he, he, he's based out of Kentucky, I believe, and some of the palm trees and tropical plants that he has managed to grow and cultivate and keep surviving from season to season uh, there is really impressive. So I think here in Central Texas, I have it easy compared to some of the other people where you have actual winters most of the time.
0: Sure, and and for folks who are listening who may have a bit of a green thumb, what zone is that? Uh, that would I'm in
1: Zone Eight B, which is not tropical. You can think uh, most of Florida, the northern part of Florida is Eight B, whereas the southern tip of Florida is like Zone Eleven, and they can grow coconut palms, which you know if you open the you know refrigerator door close to them, they'll die. So that's wow, that is
0: a really impressive context to have. I mean, yes, I mean, certainly in Texas, you know, you're you're definitely in a zone of the U.S. that I'd say a, a good chunk of the U.S. population can't really compete with in terms of being able to keep some of these things alive. But I, I appreciate the, uh, the book recommendation. We'll definitely link to that book in the show notes. And uh, folks who might be somewhere like me, that's, you know, I think I'm in 7B here in D.C. It's not exactly... You know the most hospitable climate for certain tropical things but i'm still able to grow a bunch of super hot peppers and and other things that tend to like the heat so uh if you're anywhere from the mid-atlantic sort of south and you don't have you know super alpine climates then uh, chances are you should be able to to at least play around with some of these plants that we've been mentioning or, or others that you can find in that book one of the reasons why i appreciate the the botanical side of things with you uh, is because it, it seems to be an aspect of tiki that just keeps on giving. Uh, and it doesn't have anything to do with the drinks. Now, when I think of other, I guess, cocktail traditions, the, the only one that I can really think of as an archetype would be something like the Prohibition Era speakeasy. You know, maybe we've got you've got your swing dancing, you've got your dark room with the password, you've got this uh, this air of illicitness and secrecy. But outside of that sort of speakeasy culture, I can't really think of any other type of cocktail culture that is as unique and sort of stands out on its own, like Tiki does. And when you compare Tiki to something like that speakeasy culture, you don't have those little side passions like botany and like, we'll get to later the, the music, um, that's so unique to that cocktail tradition. Um, and so I, I, I just, I, I really like it because there's been a lot of calls for, uh, I guess, frankly, cancellation in the Tiki world, uh, Tiki, for better or for worse, has gotten where it is today by a certain amount of appropriation. You know, Don Beach and Trader Vic were just a couple of white guys who ended up appropriating some of these island cultures in the process of creating all these wonderful drinks. And so that is, you know, certainly problematic in many ways. but then I look at your Instagram and I see just how much fun you're having with plants and with music. And I was like, man, That's not hurting anyone. This is wonderful. It seems like a wonderful passion to be able to dive into. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you wanted to maybe um, dive a little bit more into uh, what Tiki is and what Tiki means to you or your particular brand of Tiki for that matter.
1: Okay, well, yeah, I have I have thoughts, I have opinions. Uh, not sure how much uh, people want to hear from a middle-aged white guy who's overweight, but you know, there's no shortage of uh, uh, opinions on this subject. Uh, you know, tiki is escapism. It's immersive. It's the fantasy vacation, which we've already touched. And a lot of people don't realize that Don Beach and Trader Vic did not create tiki bars. Uh, in fact, uh, I was discussing it with uh, Sven Kirsten uh, before uh, this interview, doing some research on where the tiki bar term originated. Now, Sven is a German filmmaker who is a transplant in California, and he has written The Book of Tiki, uh, Tiki Modern, Tiki Pop, and several other books. Uh, He was, an outsider came in, was fascinated by this decaying remnants of this tiki culture that he saw, and he investigated it. And up through the 60s, they were generally called uh, Polynesian restaurants or tropical restaurants, tropical themed. You know, from the 40s and 50s, post-World War II, themed restaurants, immersive restaurants, not just tiki, were very common and very popular. So in that aspect, tiki, well, pre-tiki, wasn't uh, an outlier. It wasn't until the 1950s when Stephen Crane got involved... And he started incorporating carved tiki's into his restaurants, the Khan Tiki, the Luau and Beverly Hills, and uh, Ports of Call, that the tiki started becoming associated more with the pseudo-Polynesian restaurants, which, you know, to be honest, borrowed as much from the Caribbean as they did from Polynesia and Oceania, exotic, tropical getaway resorts. Um... Yeah. When I was when I was first starting my build in 2017, in June, there was the Hapuna Kuna controversy in Corvallis, Oregon. It was uh, an individual had opened a tiki bar. And it had used a significant amount of Hawaiian imagery, uh, Hawaiian gods or whatever, but presented them in a way uh, many of the indigenous people living in the uh, Pacific Northwest uh, found disrespectful. And there was a significant controversy about that. And the uh, individual, to his credit, after some initial resistance, apologized, uh, said he hadn't realized what he was doing was uh, offensive in any way and altered the theme of his uh tiki bar and changed it to the salty dog and made it more nautical um you have occasionally have controversies like that and that was the most high profile and at the time i was thinking well should i even call my place a tiki bar a home tiki bar whatever and after thinking and looking at the landscape i realized that what i called my place really wouldn't make a difference because everyone else in general was going to call it a tiki bar. Uh, You have in Florida the uh, typical chiki huts that uh, originated with the Seminole Indians. Everyone calls those tiki huts now. Uh, Anything that has thatch or bamboo, the general public has attached tiki to. Again, it wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that tiki bar became a term for what we now know as tiki bars or restaurants or anything like that. And it wasn't the tiki culture that brought it up because tiki culture at that point was effectively dead. It was kind of the general public. Um, that said, here we go. Old white guy pontificating. Now, Um, I think in my opinion, the appropriation debate is kind of a distraction from the real issue. Um, the real issue being the legacy of colonialism. You know, appropriation is a symptom. There is a fuzzy line between appropriation and cultural exchange and cultural appreciation. Uh, what is one to one person is something different to another. Uh, personally, I say, you know, I try to be, don't be an asshole. If, if someone is troubled by what you're doing, you know, that's a red flag. You need to st- step back and take a second look at it. Um, There is a group, uh, the Pacifica Project, which uh, your listeners may find very interesting. Uh, It's uh, organized by uh, indigenous uh, people of oceanic descent uh, who are in the uh, hospitality industry, uh, Mariah Kunkel and Samuel Jimenez. And they are not necessarily telling people how they should build a tiki bar or what they should avoid, or what they should do. But they're putting articles and books and commentary out there so you can educate yourself and you can understand the perspective of these indigenous people because they're not gone. They're not extinct. They still live here. If you have um, any knowledge of the history of Hawaii, you would be... a you know, flabbergasted, why the hell these people aren't up in arms trying to, you know, strangle every white person they come across. I mean, uh, uh, there's a book called Hawaii's Story by Hawaii's last queen, Lily O'Kalani. And it's horrifying that American businessmen essentially moved in, staged a coup, and deposed a sovereign ruler so they could make money and eventually fold Hawaii into, you know, the United States territories. Um, And the same story repeats over and over. You had uh, the Maori in New Zealand where the British Empire launched a centuries-long campaign of attempted extermination. They didn't succeed. Um, There's the Cook Islands, Fiji, um, you know, Tahiti with France. Uh, The Rapa Nui, which is what many people know as Easter Island— Uh, not only were they driven nearly to extinction, there was a Western narrative about the culture that is almost 100% false, that they uh, are victims of their own environmental destruction and warfare. It was not a warring culture. Um, They did not destroy their environment. They adapted to an incredibly hostile environment and actually thrived there for centuries. Um, so, So many of these narratives that have been perpetuated over the past 200 years or so are just incredibly off base. And uh, all these Oceana cultures um, were really thriving and very advanced. As far as seafaring, as far as agriculture, they were thriving in their environment. And, you know, for Westerners to come in and kind of pat them on the head and say, you know, y- y'all are quaint here. Let's put you on a postcard. You know, that's insulting. And I can understand why uh, indigenous peoples would be offended by that. Um, Another interesting person to follow is Chucky Tom. Uh, She's uh, responsible for she or they. I'm sorry, I'm not really sure what their pronoun preference is. But uh, Chucky Tom is responsible for the doom tiki pop-up, which is a metal tiki concept that avoids um, indigenous imagery altogether. So... That's a long, roundabout way of saying you just need to be aware. You need to think um, and say, you know, is this going to be damaging to someone? You know, there are some people in Polynesian cultures that enjoy tiki bars, enjoy the homage, so to speak. There are others that are gravely offended. And there are people who fall in between. Uh, I don't have a lot of oceanic friends, but some of who say they enjoy tiki mostly but okay this over here they're a little uncomfortable with i pay attention to that and you know i'm still learning i don't have all the answers if i had all the answers you know i'd be a lot wiser than i actually am but you know listen be aware be careful and be comfortable
0: I like what you have to say about the cultural exchange, because if if you think about it, if you're not listening, then you're not exchanging, you're just taking, right? You're just going to, if you're just, you know, saying, ah, well, I like this little tiki guy here. I'm going to take him. And ooh, I like that picture of the woman in the hula skirt. I'm going to take that. And you just assemble without, you know, really closely listening, then yeah you're, you're really not taking part in cultural exchange, you're taking part in you know the actual cultural appropriation side of things. Uh, so I think you're right. I think listening is, is a key thing here. You know, I, I also don't think that Tiki is, is really something that should be subject to cancel culture because uh, I think what we would lose in that process is a whole bunch of delicious drinks that I don't want to lose. And when I think about the prospect of Tiki sort of fading out due to um, outrage, I just think of a less delicious world. And that's, you know, a less delicious world at the end of the day is not something that I can support. But one one thing that's interesting to me about Tiki is the important role that Kitsch plays in in the escapism. Uh, I I read something about this a while ago. Uh, and, And if you really think about the proliferation of these Polynesian-style restaurants, these themed restaurants, and then subsequently the evolution of these things, as you described, into Tiki, the escapism is really sort of in direct response to World War II. Now, of course, Don Beach um, and Trader Vic were creating these cocktails before the Second World War. They might have been trying to escape something else, namely the Great Depression. but. Um, You know, after World War II, when so many American service people went to the Pacific and had these horrific experiences, uh, there, there really wasn't a lot of thinking going on. You didn't want to think back to what actually happened there in the Pacific. You kind of wanted to have something that stood in as a placeholder. And and so that's why I think, you know, you get this Disneyfication, you get this kitschification of what Tiki is. It's not real. You know, as you mentioned, it's not real Polynesian culture. It's a Polynesian themed restaurant that then evolved into a Tiki bar. And I think the cool thing About this whole debate that we're having is that today we are now in a place where we are able to look back. We have enough distance from some of these cultural traumas to be able to look back and say, okay, what did we actually do for all those decades? And how can we make this better? Like the doom tiki thing, where it's like, hmm, man, you know, this just turns out that this kitschy and really fun cocktail concept is prime. for riffing and bringing it off into the, you know, all these other domains. I could see any number of fun sort of Doom Tiki style riffs being done. And I think that I'm excited for more of that to happen, just as I'm excited that more of these resources are getting out there. And and I, I think that another great um, way to make sure that you're doing good listening is to subscribe to some of these resources that you uh you listed jamie so we'll definitely link to to a bunch of those in the show notes as well i guess to wrap up this section are there any sort of resources that as you built this lagoon of mystery whether they're books or um podcasts or blogs like like you mentioned are there anything besides what you've already mentioned that you think would be instrumental in helping any of our listeners who might also be interested in taking their Tiki game or their tiki, home Tiki bar to the next level.
1: Yeah, there are quite a few resources. Uh, unfortunately, the best resource that I would have uh, recommended Tiki Central's website, it's currently down, it's been down for, well, since almost the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it was old bulletin board, message board style site which uh, that turned out to be its downfall because its uh, coding was more than 20 years old and is no longer compatible with uh, modern servers. So uh, rumor has it that all the data is preserved and it is going to be uh, modernized and uploaded and restored at some point in the future, at which point there will be much rejoicing. But, you know, Tiki Central is a side project for... uh, the owners who have full-time day jobs and so it's not necessarily a priority uh, after that on facebook there are a couple of tiki groups uh, that are useful one is home tiki builds drinks and resources another group is all tiki bar builds where people go on there and share what they're doing and trade inspiration uh, It lo- does a lot of what tiki central used to do um, Tiki Central was more easily uh, searchable than Facebook ever will be, but uh, there's a lot of real-time interaction. You have a lot of traffic flow there, and people are willing to share lots of information. Um, Tiki Pop by Sven Kirsten, that is uh, one book of his that is still in print. It just came out in a smaller, more compact uh, size. It's not quite digest size. It's still a really heavy, thick tome. Uh, It's chock full of pictures and history of Polynesian pop, the phenomenon that we look back on today and say, oh, well, that's kind of tiki culture from the 1930s on where it emerged from uh, Hawaiiana, the obsession with Hawaii and evolved over the years. And that is great because it gives you a good perspective of what was and how it progressed and eventually died out in the 1970s. Um, as far as building goes, if you have uh, woodworking skills, then you know you're in good shape. If you don't, there are a lot of resources online now that didn't exist back when I started being self-taught and therefore you can avoid a lot of the bad habits that I've picked up over the years but there's a, a podcast called Wood Talk Online. It's a, a conversation of three guys, Mark Shannon and Matt and they're Freaking hilarious! You know, it, it it's just nonstop one-liners. I'd say it's uh, uh, the uh, woodworking equivalent of uh, car talk. Only none of them do really Buddy Hackett impressions. Uh, they're funny and they provide a lot of lot of uh, useful information. Uh, each one of them has their own independent uh, solo media channels as well for different approaches to building. One does hand tools only. One is hybrid hand tools and uh, uh, power tools, and the other one. Built his own sawmill. So these guys are hardcore and they know everything there is to do. And there's others on YouTube as well. Uh, Crafted Workshop has good projects you can learn a lot of techniques from. Uh, Stumpy Nubs is a a woodworker who's been around for decades and people swear by him. So you can learn a lot just from your house, just clicking the mouse and looking at other uh, YouTube video websites. There's real easy, basically spoon feeds you a lot of the information. A lot of what I've done, I've used bamboo harvested uh, from a local area where there's a big uh, windscreen uh, grove of bamboo. If you're in California or Florida, you might want to be cautious about this uh, because Asian bamboo weevils are an issue in those uh, states. They haven't really reached Texas, so safe there. Um, but Bamboo Bin, who is a professional uh, tiki bar design and builder, uh, shared a video with me uh, a couple of years ago about a house where they harvested their own bamboo in California and did the walls in it. And then after about six months, uh, these weevil eggs started hatching. And it was uh, like a termite infestation just throughout their house. They had to tint the entire house. So you got to be, you got to be aware of that. Um, to treat, there there are a number of ways to treat. The most common way is a solution of uh, borax and boric acid, soak in there because that kills uh, insects and renders the bamboo uh, uh, untasty, unpalatable for them. Uh, I've never, really done that. I use a flame treatment on there, but you know, it's bamboo is common and in uh, you know temperate areas of the U.S. it'll grow. There's native bamboo. Uh, if you're throughout the south, there's River cane that's a native bamboo and it grows profusely along the riverways and that there's no reason that can't be used for
0: uh, home tiki builds.. Mm-hmm. Stumpy Nubs. I don't know if I would trust him with my uh, with my woodworking advice. It seems like he's uh, he's down a few fingers no.
1: I, I, I think that's a I- ironic title right there. He's uh, <laughs> that the, these woodworkers they are all about the humor.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I appreciate all these resources, man. I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have my hyperlinking work cut out for me on this show notes page, but that's great. That that was the point here is to to get a bunch of resources aggregated because obviously, you know, as somebody who's done this work, you know, it, it's tried and true. You've got this wonderful home tiki bar, and uh, I'm really grateful for you. Um, sharing the things that have made a big difference for you as you've developed your your tiki hobby over the
1: years that was one of my intents when i first started out uh, when i started building it i said okay this is going to be a big project once i realized what scale it was going to be so i started documenting each segment of my project on my blog and document as a build along and so for several years I included every step. You know, I'm redoing the deck here. Okay, that's one of the segments. I'm installing a booth here at the end. Okay, that's a segment. I'm, uh, you know, putting up bamboo matting on the walls. Okay, that is going to be a segment. And so each of these blog installations, I kind of do a how-to, basically documenting all my mistakes so any readers can avoid uh, treading the same ground. Uh, Since I started um, the YouTube channel, A Moment of Tiki, that's kind of transformed uh, and transferred there. I haven't done as many blog posts on the build along, but that has become more in the visual. So I recently completed a faux lava wall, accent wall know drawing on some mid-century modern and uh, tiki traditions to put something up there uh, you know as a transition in the lagoon area and so that's one of the more recent ones that I've done and it's you know kind of been fun I have no audio visual background it's all uh self-taught you know watching lots and lots of YouTube videos on how to film and edit and sound check and all the other stuff so yeah I'm just sharing my pitfalls and screw ups and accomplishments because I figure, man, if I can do this, anyone can do it. The bar is set really low.
0: So. <laughs> That's how I feel about some of my audio and video efforts. Um, so I, I'll definitely refer folks to the blog and the YouTube channel. You, those links will be very, very prominent on the show notes page. Can you just give us the name of the blog in case anyone just wants to search for it?
1: Yeah, it's on blog blogger, blogspot. It's uh, uh, JLB gibberish. That's J-L-B, then G-I-B-B-E-R-I-S-H. When I started it back in 2004, somebody had already taken gibberish because I couldn't think of any app description that was more appropriate for what I had to say.
0: Gotcha. So if you look that up, you'll come across it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, so knowing that you have most of your pitfalls there, any real quick ones that you would warn our listeners against, like any, anything that you would recommend to somebody who's just starting out that would save them a lot of time and effort on the, on the home Tiki build side of things? Well, look at your space. That's
1: the main thing. My space was outdoors and it has dictated a lot of the build. Um, I haven't dictated so much of the build. Uh, the space available has dictated what I'm going to do. It's outside. Uh, it's nine months of the year. It's pretty warm and humid, so I knew on the ceiling I couldn't put uh, Lahala matting or anything that was going to be very vulnerable. For, you know, it could, you know, humidity could cause mold issues. Uh, we have mud daubers, spiders, um, insects, and everything. It was just I didn't want wasps building nests there. And so, okay, how am I going to deal with this, the ceiling, because you can't have white ceiling in a tiki bar? Well, I look back to the old Southern tradition of painting porch ceilings blue. I so, okay, I've got this pool over here. I've got, I'm, I'm going to do this whole lagoon theme. So I painted uh, the ceiling blue and painted uh, silhouettes of sea creatures from underneath. And I have uh, projector lights that shine moving water ripples up on it at night that would never have happened inside if i were doing an interior build but because of necessity because of the unique situation with my outdoor space um, the space dictated that's what i was going to do and so when you're going to start off uh, just give your space a good look if it's interior outdoors um, if it's sprawling if it's long if it's narrow if it's square If it's an unusual shape, a lot of people build them in their basements, which is great because you don't have that many windows to cover up, Um, you know, let let the room tell you what it wants to be. If you have high ceilings, then you can hang a whole heck of a lot of spectacular stuff there, flotsam and jetsam and and lights and uh, fish and, you you know, all sorts of stuff and netting, Um, If you have really low ceilings, then you're going to approach that space entirely differently because you're not going to be able to have a whole lot of stuff hanging down. So don't feel that just because other people you've seen online are doing this in their tiki space, you have to copy this, especially if it's not really going to work for you. Find out what your space will allow and go with that. You know, it's uh, the judo style of, uh, you know, tiki design. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you take the energy that you're given and you redirect that energy. I like that metaphor. The other thing that I will add on to that is that if you're working with a bit of a blank canvas, it might benefit you to imagine people and bodies and drink builds being in that space because it's one thing to look at a space when it's empty and say, ah, here's what I'm going to put this over here. And then there's going to be that. And before you know it, you've built yourself into a corner where the space has too much clutter in it, or, you know, you've, you've made a decision about plumbing or something like that that may come back to bite you in the future. So it's, it's, it's good to almost take your time with it and imagine like, all right, when this space is built out what am i going to want to do in here how many people am i going to want to have in here on average and what's going to be comfortable do i want a separate seating area do i just want a bar with four bar stools you know there's a lot of questions to be asked and and of course you're going to need somewhere to plug in that hamilton beach stick blender um so there's there's a lot of things to take into account and i think imagining bodies in there is a big step in that direction because uh Otherwise, an empty space can very quickly get away from you, I believe.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's a good point with the water. If you're going to have a dry bar, uh, you need to plan where you're going to have a dump bucket. You know, when you mix your drinks and stuff, where's Mm -hmm. the spent ice going to go? Uh, How are you going to clean your glassware? Um, If you have access and can tap into water, uh, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do, uh, and have drainage then you can put yourself a sink there and you have a wet bar. And that's a lot more convenient, but, you know, it, it's a sliding scale. Is it going to be more trouble to try and install and force uh, plumbing in this area? Or do you have something readily available? You know, it's it again, it depends on the space available and what that space can accommodate.
0: So we've talked so far about your home bar journey We've talked a little bit about Tiki and, and how you and I feel about, you know, sort of the state of Tiki, what we think the values and the maybe some of the potential pitfalls are. We've talked about some great resources for building a home Tiki bar. We have one aspect left uh, of setting an ambiance that I've been really, really curious about recently because I know next to nothing about it. And this is another great thing about following you on instagram is that you are into the exotica music genre and i would love to hear your thoughts on that genre uh, how you got into it and maybe recommendations for anyone else who's interested in ex- starting to explore this really niche but also crazy interesting style of music that also is in my opinion one of the key parts of building an ambiance for a tiki bar well it's it's
1: funny because if you talk to a uh old-timers, tiki purists, and I say that with all affection, uh, they will insist that Exotica is the only appropriate music to play in a tiki bar. Um, Except that when Don Beach and Trader Vic started off their respective locations, Exotica didn't exist. Uh, Les Baxter created Exotica, invented Exotica as an offshoot of jazz in the early 1950s. And it was the late 1950s where Martin Denny... Popularized it, and it became a huge phenomenon. So, so you've got uh, two and a half decades there where there was no exotica to be played in any tiki bar. What they would be playing was, you know, more likely than not, hapa uh, Hawaiian music, um, and so that's absolutely appropriate. Um, hapa hali was basically means half white so it was hawaiian songs and tunes that were done with english lyrics and again talking about appropriation most of the time it was performed by session players in uh, los angeles as opposed to the originators uh, the natives in hawaii so you know there are some issues there although Hapa Hali has kind of gained a respectability uh, or a place in the history as a legitimate art form into itself but if you're, you know, really interested in it, the the Hawaiian Renaissance in the nineteen seventies really gave rise to some phenomenal indigenous artists. There, you had the Brothers Casimiro. Um, Mountain Apple Company produced a tremendous amount. Well, they still do uh, music uh, albums and stuff. That's where um, um, uh, Brother Is, you know, from somewhere over the rainbow, fame uh, got his uh, uh, recordings published there um dancing cat records uh publishes a lot of music from hawaiian slacky guitar players which is a fascinating instrumental uh discipline um and then you expand beyond hawaii because hawaii isn't the only polynesian culture out there uh there are indigenous groups like tevaka which uh includes um maori and i believe uh Guam performers and they have a real contemporary sound that is absolutely tropical but brings a lot of modern sensibility to it. Yeah. Totally infectious and they you know their their music was the inspiration for a lot of the Moana soundtrack. You know, and going back to Exotica, Les Baxter established it. Les Baxter did all sorts of stuff. Exotica was just a small part of his um, output. He did Ritual of the Savage which is which is considered a classic. Then you have uh, Martin Denny who I addressed earlier. Arthur Lyman was a long-time, very prolific uh, jazz performer who produced so many Exotica albums, uh, dozens of them. And you have modern groups as well. Ixtowele, out of Sweden, of all places, has done some phenomenal modern takes on the Exotica approach.
0: I I love this. I've, I've run into Martin Denny, and I have also run into Arthur Lyman. Yes. Yeah, there's there's a couple of good playlists on YouTube. We'll link to at least one of them in the show notes page and um yeah, there, there there's some really good resources out there and uh you know, it's 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 so fascinating to hear you put it all in context because of course, yeah, there there was no genre for this when it all started out in the 1930s with Don Beach and uh, Trader Vic. And I I think that's one of my big takeaways from this conversation with you is is that like, you know, you really need to sort of step back and say like, all right, here are our assumptions about Tiki. Let's do a little bit of reading and research and check and see if these are true. And then also like, well, you know, Tiki is all about Escapism and, and sort of putting yourself in a happy place. So I, you know, I, I suppose that the, the death metal uh, tiki concept that you were mentioning earlier—that you know—they're probably not playing any of these uh, traditional exotica trance soundtracks. They're probably playing things that are much more hardcore. So I can see a bunch of um, different expressions of this, and I, I love that there's some flexibility to it. And I, I think being in touch with the history allows you to, I guess, be a little bit more intentional and explicit with the choices that you're making for your home space and for the music that you like. And, you know, are you a a Hawaiian slide guitar person or do you really want that weird kind of eerie ethereal theremin playing in the background? Like you, you have, you have some really great resources and really great options when it comes to decking out your bar, not only with the visual stuff, but also with the auditory stuff as well, which I which I love.
1: And I apply the same escapist uh, remove to my music selection as I do to the whole build-out. Because uh, I've been to tiki bars where the owner wasn't into tiki. They were chasing a trend and didn't get the ambient music of Exotica or any of the related genres. And so, okay, we're going to play boy bands from the nineties and get the energy pumping and and pack in a younger crowd or other things like that. And, you know, sometimes if they're kind of half hearted into Tiki and know that, you know, modern top 40 isn't appropriate, they'll just put on reggae. And I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think there's really anything wrong with reggae in a Tiki bar. A lot of people will argue with me about that. Um, But they need to put in more thought to it than just Bob Marley's greatest hits. You know, reggae is not just Bob Marley. In my home bar, um, I play Calypso. And that's, again, not just Harry Belafonte, but most people don't realize how huge Calypso was at the very end of the 1950s. Um, there are artists from uh, the Caribbean, Mighty Sparrow, Lord Invader, Calypso Rose, uh, were huge. I mean, Rum and Coca-Cola was stolen from Lord Invader by Maury Amsterdam, who claimed it for himself, and there was a big lawsuit against it. But... Uh, um, you know, Robert Mitchum recorded a Calypso album. Maya Angelou recorded a Calypso album. Josephine Premis, a great Broadway performer, recorded a Calypso album. There's a lot of really interesting Calypso out there. Bossa Nova, I think, is perfect for tiki bars. Um, people, some people will say, oh, Brazil's not tiki. Brazil is tropical... Brazil is escapist. Brazil has as much place in tiki as the Caribbean. Uh, You know, you got Stan Getz, you got Joe Bim, you got Gilberto, you got Carlos Lyra, you got Charlie Bird. Bossa Nova is great. And going from there, you can get into the Cuban Latin sound, uh, Desi Arnaz, uh, the big band sounds of Edmondo Rus and Xavier Cugat. Um, Really fantastic stuff. I know a lot of people uh, like to play Rat Pack stuff. Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., um, get into the easy listening, um, get some um, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, maybe Baja Marimba Band, um, Julie London, uh, um, uh, Jackie Gleason, his albums he put out. Uh, Ultra Lounge, get a modern swing on things, uh, play some Combustible Edison. Uh, all of those are of a different time. They're all transportative. They will take you someplace else and contribute to that illusion. If, you know, you're hearing um WAP playing really loud or something like that, yeah, that's that's not really gonna contribute, I don't think. Hey, you know, if you want to play it in your home home bar, go for it. But, you know, um I I don't think it quite works. I, I think you have to be strategic about it. I think you have to have a vision. You can make almost anything work if you have the vision and follow through with it. Uh, One of the things I like to make a comparison of, uh, some people will say, Tiki is totally made up, so anything can be Tiki. Well, what about the um, Gillies in uh, in, uh, Urban Cowboy? How about the Mechanical Bull? Is that Tiki? Is John Travolta on the Mechanical Bull Tiki? Anything can be Tiki? Well, no, but... But, dial it back a little bit and think. The panolio culture in Hawaii was a cowboy culture. Existed for a couple hundred years. There was a lot of cattle raised, and it was a vibrant culture. There are uh, paniolo songs. You could do a tiki bar. Not cut out of whole cloth. I mean, you know, you don't want to get into the cultural issues, but get some consultants, work in there, make it a tribute to the Paniolos. I could see a complete and total justification for having a mechanical bull in a tiki bar if you do your homework and if you do it right, and you're not going to try and cut corners. So, you know, if you have your vision, follow through with it, follow through with it, and you can make it work, but you really have to think things through.
0: Yeah. I, I think what I'm getting from this conversation is that it's absolutely within your rights and totally encouraged for you to do whatever you want. But what there is no excuse for, it seems, is not doing the groundwork or not doing the research first and then using that to do whatever you want. And and so, I, I, I mean, I'm personally just blown away by your encyclopedic knowledge of the all of these different genres of music, um, you know, as you were talking, I. I I thought of other different you know, types of soundtracks. I could see a Buena Vista Social Club working in, in a certain tropical bar format, you know, different, different things that are more or less popular these days, but that are still very easy to, uh, to locate and, and download. So um, yeah, I, I'm really grateful that you were willing to, to go down that little rabbit hole on, on music because it's, some, it's something that I'm not very well versed in, but that I'd like to become a little bit more versed in uh, as we go here. So uh, I think that's a great place to wrap up the main portion of our interview. Uh, Do you have a few minutes for a couple quick lightning round questions?
1: Absolutely. I was born ready. I just want to dial back one thing. A a thought just popped into my uh, easily distracted brain uh, about uh, using the term as tiki. I know that there are a number of individuals and places that are trying to move away from the term tiki drinks, tiki cocktails, because of the concern and the connotations I'm not really sure that that is going to accomplish what they hope uh, because if tiki and tropical are not interchangeable, um, the pina colada is a tropical drink. It's not a tiki drink. Uh, Tiki drinks have more of a history of the craft cocktail, of the balance. When you start getting into tropical drinks that kind of slides towards boat drinks, which are overly sweet, overly sugar, unbalanced, and what, you know, tourists who don't really care on vacation drink because that's all that's available. And I don't know if that's really um, the messaging that wants to go out as far as uh, talking about the quality of the drinks or the context of the drinks. Because if I go into a bar and it says tropical drinks, my expectations are going to be different than if I go to a bar that has maybe not a tiki bar, but has a menu that says tiki drinks on it. I, I, I you know, that may be splitting hairs too much for a number of people, but until um, uh, more precise terminology comes around, I, I think that's a, a clear distinction that probably needs to be maintained
0: somehow. My mm. two cents. Well, yeah, it's a it's a challenging thing, and I, I think honestly, what to call something is a little bit more challenging than actually just the raw materials of that thing. Um, there's a lot a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions, but uh, you know that that's why I tend to want to focus on the drinks, on the music, on the plants, because there's very little controversy uh, around the flowers that you've planted or the uh, different rums that you've blended into your drink. And so that's where I tend to stay to uh, continue to enjoy the genre. But uh, uh, it has been really, really interesting to hear your takes on all this. And uh, I really appreciate not only the the nuance that you bring to it, but the amount of research that you've done, because it's certainly more than I've done, and uh, it's given me a lot of good little data points and hooks that I can look into on my end to to make myself better. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals and you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART all one word, at checkout. That's Barcart, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. Let's jump into the lightning round. What is your favorite Tiki cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've been getting into more recently? My favorite uh, tiki cocktail is probably going to have to be the
1: Chief Lapu Lapu. I first had one in 2018 at Hale Pele, up in Portland, Oregon, and it blew my mind. Um, Up until that point, my wife and I had gone to a number of so-called tiki bars, and each time we came away saying, that was it, that's what the fuss was about, Uh, they were really underwhelming. And so we were visiting the Pacific Northwest and, okay, this Hale Pele place is supposed to be pretty good. Let's go try it out. And it was spectacular. Uh, it, it's a Martin Kate bar. He's one of the partners in it. And the build-out was fantastic. It was immersive. And as we were waiting to get in, we weren't even in yet because there was a line to get in, uh, we got a menu and ordered something. I saw Chief Lapu Lapu, had no idea what it was. But I saw one of the primary ingredients was passion fruit. And I love passion fruit. I'm a nut for passion fruit, uh, which is one of the reasons I got into growing passion vines and passion flowers. So I said, okay, I'll try this. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was everything that I had hoped a tiki cocktail would be. Uh, Tart, flavorful, sweet, good rum presence. And my wife was drinking her drink, and we both looked at each other and said, oh, we get it now. And (laughs) since then... I've learned a little bit more about the Chief Lapu-Lapu. Chief Lapu-Lapu was a real person. He was a Filipino chieftain uh, made famous because he killed uh, Ferdinand Magellan in battle, the European uh, uh, explorer-slash-conqueror-slash-colonizer. And through friends that I have in the Tiki uh, community have since learned that Chief Lapu-Lapu cocktail was most likely invented by Filipino bartenders who had or were working for Don the Beachcomber at the time. So they came up with the name to celebrate their own heritage in this tiki cocktail. So I think that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic drink. And uh, we'll be sure to uh, see if we can link to it and put the build over on the show notes. Uh, Next question. This is a niche question just for this episode. To you, Jamie, what makes a good tiki mug, and are there any trends or designs in the tiki mug world right now that have you particularly excited? I love the individual artistry. Um, It's always, well,
1: I won't say always. In 2000, there was almost no tiki mugs except for whatever you could find in thrift stores held over from the previous age of tiki. Uh, Then uh, Tiki Farm started up, and shortly after that, I believe uh, Monk Tiki started up. And those were kind of the only players in town for a while. And for them, it was a labor of love back then. They're huge now. Uh, They do a lot of great stuff. But I'm seeing a lot of individual one-person operations uh, starting up. People are uh, chucking the day job, going full-time into ceramics. Uh, There's uh, one guy Is. Designing on computer and 3D printing all of his uh, base molds uh, or, or um, prototypes for his mugs, and then casting molds from that and then pouring his ceramics. There's a guy, Omar, uh, runs Oakwash out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, makes some fantastic, really inventive uh, mugs there in his home shop, which he has built up over the past two years. Uh, Coxon and Dunsel. Uh, out of Houston, have done some really fun crossover pop culture mashups. Uh, I don't know if uh, uh, Peter Jackson or, or um, Andy Serkis ever listens to this podcast, but he's got a Gollum head mug that he has done that is, you know, looks like it could have come straight out of Way Workshop. Uh, so just the incredible uh, diversity and freedom of these individual artists that are following their passion, that, that just inspires me. That It's really great. And there, there's a lot of nice mass-produced mugs out there as well, but I really enjoy the enthusiasm and... and the excitement that surrounds uh, these individual mug makers. Yeah,
0: in that respect, I, I suppose that Etsy might also be a decent place to start looking for for some of those uh, more one off, more artist inspired uh, mugs. Of course, um, you listed some great ones, so we'll link to those too. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's crazy. As I, I listen to you name all these people, it seems like they're you know, it's almost like you're you're repping friends, and you know, I'm sure that you haven't met. Uh, A fraction of these people, Um, but it's uh, one thing that I think it speaks to is the sense of community in the tiki world. And I think that is certainly um, something to take away from this as well as uh, you know, it just seems to be a generally welcoming place to hang out.
1: And it's also the phenomenon of social media. A lot of these places, I people in places I never would have known of had it not been for social media. Now, just like with you and me, we first connected over social media uh, when I called you to task for omitting fashionola when you were talking about the hurricane. So, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's just an intermeshed, interlinked community. And these people are really receptive. I mean, you approach someone who want to talk or have a question or offer them a compliment, you know, that start, strikes up a conversation and, you know, two years later, you meet somewhere by chance. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. I mean, you just meet people that you never would have come across
0: before. That's really cool. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Widowmaker question, uh, cocktail with anyone past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. I've got two answers for you because I have
1: actually been thinking about this for a couple of years as I've listened to your podcast. Um, the first, I think, would be pretty obvious. Uh, first person I would have a drink with would be Don Beach at Don the Beach Beachcombers circa 1937. I choose 1937 because he was at the height of his prowess. At that point, most of his signature cocktails had been completed and were on the menu. Uh, he hasn't started branching out with multiple locations at that point. Uh, Trader Vic had just started up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that was kind of the, the pre-golden age right there. And I would let him hold forth. I would just say, you know, what do you have? What do you want to show off? You know, because he was always throwing something back and forth together. Vic was Vic was great with the food and the culinary aspect, but really Trader Vic's claim to fame is the Mai Tai. That's his one big cocktail. You look at Don Beach, and he's got the zombie. He's got the Cobra's Fang. He's got the jet pilot. He's Navy Grog. I mean. Don really had a palate that lent itself To amazing cocktails and some of his later ones were actually created by the Filipino bartenders and Don put his name on it and took credit for it so I don't want to erase anyone there the four famous bartenders back in the back shop but you know there's no no question that Don started off you know really pumping out some amazing drinks so I would just say you know my my drinks are in your hands sir you know mix as you will The second, uh, I suspect you're not going to expect. I would um, go to the Eagle and Child Pub in Oxford, same year, 1937. The bird bird and the the baby. baby, And have a pint with the Inklings, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, and everyone else. I would probably go with a porter, maybe a nut brown ale, but uh, nothing too exotic because I wouldn't want them to look at me askance. But I would just sit back and listen. I would just sit back and listen to these... Oxford legends just holding forth about everything, arguing over whatever writing project they had at the time, uh, you know, reading selections of their work and I suspect getting pissed drunk. (laughs) I think that would be a
0: blast, absolute blast, be a fly on the wall right there. So uh, I have been able to visit the uh, Eagle and Child pub and I'm ashamed to say, man, this is embarrassing. This was uh, in 2010, so about 11 years and change ago, uh, I went I went to the Eagle and Child. It was March, maybe late March, early April in Oxford, and at that time there was a beer out called Sign of Spring, and it was it was a green beer. So I can say that I went and drank a green <laughs> beer at the Eagle and Child, real real high point in my uh, my drinking career right there. But I was uh, I was only 21. Actually, I wasn't even twenty-one at that point. I was only twenty years old at that point. So, uh, hopefully, we'll forgive uh, past past Eric for his uh, beer transgressions. But that's that's a fantastic answer. Well, well, the green makes it classy. Yeah, yeah, classy or grassy. Um, last one here. Uh, any controversial views in the spirits, cocktail, or tiki world?
1: Hold me back. <laughs> I, I I would. Dearly wish that all these newly forming, newly starting uh, micro slash craft distilleries that pop up all across the country would just stay the hell away from rum unless they're serious about it. I think uh, their early production, and you know this, they all want to make whiskey, which there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But... If you're going to have a legitimate whiskey, you got to age it for four years. And nobody wants to go without cash flow for four years. So, what do they do? They make vodka, which I think is a cynical approach. I mean, it's pragmatic, but it's still cynical because they don't care about vodka. You know, most of the time I don't care about vodka, but the people who are making it don't care about vodka. If they want to have more than just vodka producing revenue streams, what do they do? They look, oh, we'll do a white rum. Because that's a garbage drink. You know, they don't care about rum. And you know what? I've tasted them, and they produce garbage rum. It's a waste of time and resources, and it brings the whole category down. There is so much spectacular rum. There's so much spectacular unaged white rum out there that people should be drinking. Yet they're making stuff... Destined for trash can punch and dragging the entire category down and giving the entire category a bad name. So I would I, I say, you know, you know, make whatever crappy vodka you want, but just stay the hell away from rum. Unless you are serious about it and want to do it right. Because you know what? Molasses is not as easy to ferment and distill as a mash with corn and barley. Okay? It's just not. And you're going to embarrass yourself and embarrass everyone else. So just stay the hell away from rum,
0: unless you're serious about it. I like that. There are now, a- see, see
1: Balcones Distillery up in Waco. Waco is not a town that you would associate with uh, spirits at all, but they are a whiskey-focused distillery. But they have a serious-aged rum that they do. Balcones Rum, and it is quite good. They, they, um, their expression is, um, not overproof. I think it's, uh, like, uh, like 90 proof. I, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it, it's, it's not the 40, 40% ABV and it is excellent and they do a good job. So they get a pass and anyone else who wants to invest the time and effort to produce a good rum gets a pass. But if you're just trying to crank it out there because rum's easy and it's a garbage liquor and nobody cares anyway, then you no, know, just no, don't
0: even start. Don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, we'll shout out our, a couple of rum friends here. We've got uh, Kohana rum out of Hawaii. They were recently on the podcast, uh, doing some incredible stuff. Uh, Equiano rum also recently on the pod doing some really, really cool stuff. And, uh, our friends over at uh, line distilling company on the Eastern shore also putting out some great rum in the craft space. So if you know where to look, it's out there, but yes, uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, Man, there's so much good rum in the world right now. It's just it, it's it almost shows how insular America is as a nation that the bad stuff has gotten so big. You know, uh, it shows like how how poorly traveled our palates are when you look at some of these American craft spirits and be like, hmm, wow. <laughs> Can't believe somebody's bottling this. Well, I'm hoping rum continues on the trajectory it's
1: currently on. Right now, it's the category is growing, but fairly slowly. Uh, That growth has allowed a lot of new and interesting expressions and companies to come on board with some phenomenal juice. So I want that to continue, the continued steady growth. I don't want it to catch fire and this be the year of rum and it skyrockets like bourbon and everyone's trying to do the rum version of Pappy Van Winkle. I don't want that because my pocket board, my pocketbook cannot handle that. But I want it to slow, steady, continuous mm-hmm. rise and create more space for more better rums. And I'm looking forward to that because there's some fantastic stuff out there.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Last, I forgot to shout out my friend Chase at St. Benevolence. They have an amazing clarin and uh, also uh, another um, Caribbean-style rum. So, yeah. Jamie, this has been tremendous, my friend. Uh, Can you just take us through the digital ways to connect with you? Give us uh, your social media. Give us your YouTube channel and uh, remind us that blog one more time. And um, we'll send everyone there to go and check out the Lagoon of Mystery and a Moment of Tiki.
1: Okay. uh, On Instagram, I'm... Easily found at Lagoon of Mystery. That's uh, dedicated to my home tiki bar and most of my uh, tiki adventures um, on YouTube. Search for a moment of tiki. And I have random things, thoughts. Sometimes I even occasionally post uh, builds that I do, but also go into cocktails and book reviews and even interviews on occasion. And uh, I'm findable on YouTube. The Facebook is Jamie Bloschke, or, you know, I have a page for A Moment of Tiki and also a page for Lagoon of Mystery, my home bar. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty inescapable if you can
0: just get the spelling right. Beautiful, beautiful. We will link to all that on the show notes page, plus as many of the resources that you have listed as we can possibly put together. Um, but Jamie this has been fun man and uh, I really appreciate you what you do the Laguna mystery and thanks so much for being a guest here on the modern bar cart podcast
1: my pleasure Eric
0: This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Tiki Bar Building insights, botanical resources, and playlist recommendations, courtesy of Jamie Bloschke, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.